You are listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Morning. As Steve said, my name is Greg. I'm, I'm one of the residents here at Liberty. Um, so for the past few months, we have been... Uh, Looking at the book of Kings, specifically looking at the ministries of Elijah and Elisha, and applying what we can learn from these two Old Testament prophets to our lives. And this morning, we're going to be in the book of 2 Kings and chapter 13. And so if you could open up to 2 Kings 13. If you're using one of the black hardcover Bibles around you, it should be on page 319. And as, as you get there... Um, and before we dive in and start talking about this passage, I, I want to tell you two stories. Uh, the first story is a story of, of one of my best friends growing up. Um, this morning, we'll call him Colton. Uh, I, I knew Colton because we wrestled together in high school. And Colton was one of the most eccentric people you would ever meet. He was like out of a movie, but he went to... Souderton area senior high school. And um, it, let me tell you what Colton was like. His best friend was uh, Ralph, his cat. He, one time we were away at a, uh, a, a duel for wrestling and we were in the hotel room and for fun, for fun, he challenged me to a knife fight. And, uh, and when I, I, I think legitimately expressed a little concern about the safety of a knife fight. He reassured me, uh, Greg, don't be a fill-in-the-blank. We'll just do leg shots, just leg shots, no big deal. Um, When I would get off the bus in in high school, across the parking lot, it was not uncommon to hear Colton's voice echo, Greg Kobachian! Just like embarrassingly loud for a ninth, tenth grader. Um, after high school, Colton Colton became an alcoholic. He, he drank heavily, frequently, used habitually used quite a few drugs. Beside that, um, one evening coming home from a party, uh, Colton was drunk, and he crashed his car and got a DUI. He was okay, but but he got a DUI and. Um, because of the nature of the incident, he was definitely going to lose his license, uh, possibly face some jail time. Um, at the time in Colton's life, he, he didn't have a great job. His family life was difficult, and this DUI was just too much for him to handle. And so a few weeks later, uh, drunk again in his bedroom, alone with his cat, he hung himself from a ceiling fan. By God's grace, his dad came home just in time to cut him down, saved his life. And a few weeks after that, COVID hit. And due to like maybe the COVID craziness or the the normal clerical errors that our government has, uh, the paperwork for his DUI was just permanently misplaced. A month ago, it had felt to him like his life was ending. It was over, there was no hope. And here he was with a blank slate. Now Colton could have celebrated this fact with a few glasses of scotch, 
but he didn't. He let this merciful coincidence change the course of his life entirely. He accepted this mercy, hasn't touched a drop of alcohol since that day. He's been sober for over two years, has a fantastic job, is one of the hardest workers you'll ever meet, and is one of the kindest people you will ever meet. God showed him grace, and his life completely changed. The second story I want to tell you is not about someone I personally know, but one I read this week. Uh, John Whitecross, a theologian and historian, records a story about a poor woman on one of the islands in the Indian Ocean. She and whole, all of her family grew up slaves. But she worked hard enough and saved long enough to finally amass just enough money to purchase the freedom of her daughter. She hadn't saved enough for herself to go free but, but she finally was able to purchase the freedom of her daughter from the man who owned them both, and she did so. She was happy to remain a slave simply for the joy of seeing her daughter walking around free with shoes on her feet. No slave was allowed to wear shoes on their feet, and so this badge of freedom was significant. Now, not long after her daughter was set free, her mother, still a slave, came into the room and sat down next to her as she usually did. But this time her daughter turned around in a rage and exclaimed, How dare you sit down in my presence? Do you not know that I am a free woman and you are a slave? Rise instantly and leave the room. This morning we're going to talk about grace. You could define grace really simply as unmerited favor. It's sweeter than honey, more necessary than air, arguably one of the most important things in the universe. It's the reason we're here in the room together right now. But there can be a dark side to grace. Grace can cause people to stop drinking, get sober, clean their lives up, get a good job. It can also cause people to turn to their own mother and snarl, How dare you sit in my presence? The odd thing about grace is that sometimes it creates Mother Teresa's and other times it creates monsters. So as we read this text this morning, pay attention to just how various people respond to the grace of God in our passage. We're in 2 Kings 13. Follow along with me. We're going to read the whole chapter starting in verse 1. In the 23rd year of Joash, the son of Ahaziah, king of Judah, Jehoahaz, the son of Jehu, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 17 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and followed in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from them. And the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them continually into the hand of Hazael, king of Syria, and into the hand of Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael. Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hands of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. Nevertheless, they did not depart from the sins of the house of Jeroboam, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. And the Asherah also remained in Samaria. 
For there was not left to Jehoahaz an army of more than 50 horsemen and 10 chariots and 10,000 footmen. For the king of Syria had destroyed them and made them like dust at threshing. Now the rest of the acts of Jehoahaz and all that he did and his might, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Jehoahaz slept with his fathers and they buried him in Samaria and Joash his son reigned in his place. Verse 10. In the 37th year of Joash, king of Judah, Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, began to reign over Israel and Samaria, and he reigned 16 years. He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but walked in them. Now the rest of the acts of Joash and all that he did, and the might with which he fought against Amaziah, the king of Judah, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Joash slept with his fathers, and Jeroboam sat on his throne. And Joash was buried in Samaria where the, with the kings of Israel. Now, when Elisha had fallen sick with the illness of which he was to die, Joash, king of Israel, went down to him and wept before him, crying, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And Elisha said to him, Take a bow and arrows. So he took a bow and arrows. Then he said to the king of Israel, Draw the bow. And he drew it. And Elisha laid hands on the king's hands, and he said, Open the window eastward, and he opened it. Then Elisha said, Shoot, and he shot. And he said, The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you shall fight the Syrians and Aphek until you have made an end of them. And he said, Take the arrows. And he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, Strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Then the man of God was angry with him and said, You should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will only strike down Syria three times. So Elisha died and they buried him. Now, bands of Moabites used to invade the land in the spring of each year. And as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen, and the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha. And as soon as as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived. And stood on his feet. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoahaz. But the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them. And he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. When Hazael, king of Syria, died, Ben Hadad, his son, became king in his place. Then Jehoash, the son of Jehoahaz, took again from Ben-Hadad, the son of Hazael, the cities that he had taken from Jehoahaz, his father, in war. Three times Joash defeated him and recovered the cities of Israel. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? Father, as we look into your word this morning, open our hearts to what you would want us to see. What we know not, teach us. What we have not, give us. What we are not, make us. For Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord, and our Savior's sake, we pray. Amen. This morning I want to talk about two failures and a foretaste. Two failures and a foretaste. Let's begin by looking at the first failure. So in the first part of a text, we're introduced to this king named Joash. Um, Just a a note on a potentially confusing aspect of this text. There are two Joashes in 2 Kings 13. 
2. There's one Joash in the southern kingdom of Judah who is a good king in verse 1. And then there's a second king, Joash, in the northern kingdom of Israel who is a bad king. Um, So Joash, southern kingdom, Judah, good. Joash, northern kingdom, Israel, bad. It's confusing. That's just the way it is. Kind of like how every other person here at Liberty is named Jordan. Um, So... We're introduced now to this first king named Jehoahaz, who is Joash, the bad king's father. And in the 23rd year of Joash, the good king's reign, this king named Jehoahaz comes along. Now, just like every other king in the book of Kings in the northern kingdom, Jehoahaz is bad. There are 20 kings recounted in the book of Kings in the north, and every single northern kingdom king is bad. Um, So that's not a surprise. What is a surprise is what happens in verse 4. Look at it with me. It says, Then Jehoahaz sought the favor of the Lord, and the Lord listened to him, for he saw the oppression of Israel, how the king of Syria oppressed them. Therefore the Lord gave Israel a savior, so that they escaped from the hand of the Syrians, and the people of Israel lived in their homes as formerly. In verse 2, we learned that Jehoahaz is a part of the cult of Jeroboam. This means he worships golden calves, and as a king, he instructs others to do the same. And so to learn that this calf worshiper pleads with Yahweh is a bit of a shocker. Perhaps even more surprising than that, however, is that Yahweh listens to him. We would expect a staunch idol worshiper to receive from heaven like lightning bolts, fire from heaven, at least a few bears from the woods. Certainly that's what Jehoahaz deserved, and yet what he gets is mercy. Therefore, the Lord gave Israel a savior. Yahweh is unexpectedly merciful. He's a God that desires to shower even his enemies with mercy, give even traitors grace. And and listen, this is not the main point. But if you feel this morning like you are a traitor or like you are an idolater, perhaps you don't even know God and you're just considering Christianity or perhaps you've done something that just like you're racked with guilt and shame over it. Perhaps you're addicted to pornography or you've just train wrecked your marriage in a million different ways. What you need to hear is this. Our God loves showing mercy to people like you. The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, the God of the New Testament, Jesus Christ, they're the same, and he loves to show mercy to idol-worshiping pagans. He delights in it. Our God shows mercy to idol-worshippers. And it's in the context of this mercy that we see the first failure. Instead of repenting from their sin, changing their direction, and worshiping God, these idol worshipers just continue worshiping idols as if nothing had happened. Look at how the author writes. In verse 2, they're following in the cult of Jeroboam. Then God comes along, shows grace, sends them a savior, and verse 6 after this says they're still following in the cult of Jeroboam. The grace of God doesn't soften their hearts in the slightest, but but kind of counterintuitively, like the slave girl in the story that we talked about, it does the opposite. 
It just hardens their hearts as they stubbornly continue walking on the same path that they were on before. Now, this is not a problem reserved for ancient Israelites. This also can happen to us. Most of you uh, probably aren't hanging out at the cult of Jeroboam on the weekends. You probably don't have a calf statue in your living room. But I think we too can allow the grace of God to fall upon our lives and then continue on as if nothing happened. The Bible is full of grace for idol worshipers. It is also full of warnings for those who receive the grace of God and then continue on as if nothing had happened. The kindness of God is meant to lead us to change our direction, not bounce off us as we walk in the same way we did before. So has God's kindness done this for you? What idols have you left behind because of the grace of God? Or more pointedly, what idols have you kept tucked away somewhere despite the grace of God, you know, just in case? As I was reflecting on this point this week, I think God showed me an idol in my own life that I've clung to despite the grace of God being shown to me again and again and again. And it's, for me, it's, it's the idol of people-pleasing. Like, I, I care way too much what you think about me. Even as I'm saying this right now, there's this people-pleasing tendency within myself to admit just enough to you so that you like, still think I'm impressive, but now just like humble also. This tendency to, to say, yes, I'm an idol worshiper, but admit it to you in such a way that I appear winsomely self-aware. But if you could see behind the curtains of my mind and see just how much this behavior has, this, this idol has molded my behavior, I don't think it would appear as cute. It's ugly. It's exhausting. And I don't want to continue in the way of it any longer. That's what it is for me. What is it for you? Maybe it's not people-pleasing. Maybe it's your job, or your safety, or your security, or your money, or your status, or your parenting. What idol have you clung to despite the grace of God? That's the first failure. Responding to the mercy of God, not with a changed life, but with a hardened heart. The second failure is found here in this strange arrow scene that we read. So in verses 10 to 13, the author sums up the entire reign of Joash, who is Jehoahaz's son. Joash, the bad king in the north. Um, And then he comes back to this one particular story about Joash and Elisha in verse 14. This is a literary structure um, similar to like how I, as a kid, would eat my lucky charms, right? Um, So when I was a child, I would pour myself this big bowl of lucky charms, and then I would take uh, the nice like tasty marshmallow bits out and save them for later. First, then I would eat that nasty 
cardboard tasting garbage. And then I would come back and, and, and feast upon the marshmallows that I saved for the end. That's how the author of Kings treats the reign of Joash. He says, first, we're just going to get this king out of the way. 16 years of a reign can adequately be summarized in four verses. It is cardboard tasting, boring, nothing really significant happens. But there was this one interesting thing that we've saved for the end, this marshmallow of a story, and that's what we're going to talk about now. So in verse 14, he tells us this story of where Elisha is dying, and King Joash comes to him and says in verse 14, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen, basically saying, Elisha, I know you're having a bad day, you're dying, but uh, who's going to help out our military if you die? Right? Which is a, like a bit of a selfish thing to say to a man on his deathbed. It would be like if Pastor Matt were dying and you barged into his hospital room and said, Matt, Matt, who's going to preach on Sunday? Right? The, the dude is dying. He's got other things on his mind. But, but Elisha, even as he is dying, is merciful, as I'm sure Matt would be. And so he says to Joash, shoot your bow out of your window. So he shoots his bow out of his window. And then he says, take your arrows and strike the ground with them. So Joash takes his arrows and strikes the ground three times and stops. And Elisha is furious. He says, you should have hit the ground five or six times. Because you only hit the ground three times, you're only going to strike down Syria three times. What the heck, Elisha? Right? What is going on here? Is this just Elisha being nitpicky and grouchy? No, I, I think there's something deeper at play here. Right? On the surface, this seems, honestly, it seems arbitrary, a, a bit of an overreaction on Elisha's part, but we have to remember that. First, like Old Testament prophets are just weird. They just are. Second, the prophets had access to information that everyday Israelites would not have. And third, Old Testament narrators and Old Testament prophets love to use historical events as parables to illustrate truths. So when Elisha gets furious, he does so not because he's having a bad day and needed a Snickers, but because he can see Jehoash's heart and see that it's filled to the brim with apathy a commitment to only doing the bare minimum. When the author of Kings recounts the story, he does so in a way that intentionally paints a picture of Joash's half-hearted devotion and his lackadaisical indifference toward the promises of God. Notice how verse 18 ends. He struck three times and stopped. That the author included the fact that he stopped is significant. It would have been enough. It would have been saying the same thing if it said he struck three times, right? The stopping is implied. But the author goes out of his way to tell us that he stopped. The narrator calls attention to the cessation of the striking as much as to the amount of striking itself. And he does so to illustrate Joash's apathetic attitude towards God's immense mercy. We're meant to read this passage as if Elisha is telling Joash what to do, and Joash is kind of walking around with his shoulders slumped, saying, fine, rolling his eyes, and only half-heartedly obeying the promises of God. The failure of Joash in responding to mercy 
is not necessarily a hardened heart that continues to worship idols like we saw in the first, but an apathetic one that just doesn't see it as that important. As one commentator puts it, Elisha gives Joash a blank check of the word of God, and the king says, thank you, I'll cash half of it. Joash had been around Elisha for years. Most likely, he's not a stranger to grace, miracles, and supernatural acts. Like with with Elisha living down the street, you kind of have to get used to that stuff. But the tragedy of Joash was that he allowed his proximity to spiritual things to dull his sensitivities to them. The great downfall of Joash was that in response to the grand promises of God, he simply says, meh. I know a few contractors with uh, shorter index fingers than they used to have because after years of using table saws, um, they one day were a little bit careless. They were in a rush, and without thinking, they ran their hand through the saw blade. Or more accurately, the saw blade ran through their hand Getting too comfortable with the wrong thing can be deadly. And my fear is, like especially here at a, at a gospel-saturated church like Liberty, that we would grow so accustomed to hearing these splendid truths of the gospel week in and week out that we would become numb to them. The theological knowledge, the liturgy, the weekly worship a beast of a lead pastor, are tremendous blessings. But if we aren't careful, we risk beginning to take these spiritual riches of grace for granted and like Joash, just shrugging our shoulders at the glories of God. You know how kids like growing up in extremely wealthy homes sometimes struggle to realize that having loads of money isn't normal? Like they just assume that every house has an elevator and a maid. Similarly, because of the grace God has given to us, we are at risk of beginning to think that our spiritual wealth is normal and begin taking it for granted. So we ought to keep a close watch on our hearts lest we begin viewing the amazing treasures of the gospel as if they're everyday commodities and become slowly over time the spoiled brats of the heavenly family. So ask yourself this. When was the last time your sin moved you to tears? When was the last time tears rolled down your cheeks because you were amazed at the grace of God given to you in Jesus? Or or when was the last time you earnestly asked for someone else's forgiveness? We ought to keep a close watch on our hearts, lest over decades they become cold like Joe ashes to the promises of God. This is the second failure. First, it was responding to God's mercy with a hardened heart. Second, responding with, to God's mercy with an apathetic indifference. Those are the two failures. Finally, a foretaste. The last scene in our text this morning happens after Elisha dies. Elisha, unlike Elijah, is not carried to heaven in a chariot, but he does get sick and he dies. 
Um, But both of these two prophets' deaths are accompanied with supernatural, miraculous happenings. And so our narrator tells the story about how the, the Moabites used to have these routine raids of Israel in the springtime. And one day, there was this group of Israelites out uh, burying a body, a dead, a, a dead body, a corpse, and uh, they got surprised by one of these raids. The Moabites came, and kind of in a hurry, they didn't know what to do. Um, they got to get out of the area because the Moabites are attacking, so they just chuck this corpse into a random tomb. The tomb happens to be Elisha's tomb, and the corpse hits the bones of Elisha and comes back to life. Bizarre story. Uh, But as one scholar puts it, the bizarre and the truthful make a a happy couple more often than we might think. What's the point of it and what's going on here? Well, likely the initial meaning of this story to the Israelites reading this book was that God would not forget Israel while Israel was in exile. Right? Remember when the book of Kings was written. The book of Kings was written probably during the period of the exile to Israelites in Babylon to reassure them that God had not forgotten them. The dominant theme of this whole book is comforting God's exiled people. And so this point is strengthened further when you notice that the verb throw in verse 21, when the author says they threw the man into Elisha's grave, is the same verb as the author uses in verse 23 when he says, Elisha has not thrown them from his presence. Um, Some of the English translations translate those two words differently, but they're the same word in Hebrew. The story is a reassurance to Israelites in Babylon that God will not throw them away into the tomb, but actually that he will cause their nation to come to life again. It was a reassurance that not only had God not abandoned them, but that he was at work to bring them to life, which actually, like not coincidentally, happens in the chapter right after this one. But there's a second, greater meaning to this resurrection story. If you're familiar with, With your Bibles, you know that there is yet another significant resurrection that happens later in the story of the Bible. Every prophet in the Old Testament ultimately points us to the greatest prophet of all, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus is the greater Elisha, who in a greater and more permanent manner defeats death by dying. This resurrection story of a random Israelite hitting the bones of Elisha and coming back to life points us to the greater resurrection of Jesus Christ and those, us, who are united to him. Jesus is the true and better Elisha who through coming into contact with him will not only raise your physical bodies someday, but if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, has also already raised to life your soul. Throughout his ministry, Jesus touches lepers and they're healed. He touches the deaf and they hear, the blind and they see. He touches the ear of of, uh, the man whose ear Peter cuts off and it grows back and is restored. He's the ultimate spiritual King Midas. Throughout the Gospels, everything Jesus touches comes to life. Like Elisha, he was a prophet speaking the words of God. Like Elisha, he died. Like Elisha, he will resurrect all those who fling themselves upon him. Like Elisha, he rose up from the grave. Unlike Elisha, 
His resurrection is permanent. He will resurrect us someday with glorified bodies that cannot die. Unlike Elisha, he will not only restore our bodies, but our souls and all of creation with us. Therefore, the the question before us this morning is this. How have you responded to the grace of God in the resurrection of Jesus Christ? How have you responded to the promise of God that someday you will get a resurrection body? Have you allowed your heart to be hardened like Jehoahaz? Or, or do you walk around with a, like a smug indifference like Joash? Who after decades, of, maybe after decades of hearing this truth week in and week out, you've allowed your heart to become numb to it. This is the greatest news in the world. Does it feel like it? It would be really easy for me to close now and and conclude by saying, like, if your heart has been hardened to the grace of God, or if you're indifferent to it, then what you need to do is stop being indifferent to it. Try harder. Make a to-do list. Get an accountability partner. Cry more. Those things might be fine, and you, you should do some of them, but they're not the primary thing that you and I and we all need to do right now. What each and every one of us needs to do this morning is not make yet another set of spiritual resolutions to try harder and be better, but to come once again and look upon Jesus Christ and the table he has set for us. Look, gaze once again into the beauties of the mercy of God in the death and resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth. The reality of the gospel is that like, we need grace, not only for the things that we've done poorly, but we need grace for the ways in which we respond to grace. And here offered to you this morning by the God of the universe through the person of Jesus Christ is an unlimited supply of forgiveness and grace. The first step to responding well to this grace is to throw away your to-do lists and simply admire it. Will you pray with me? Father, as we prepare our hearts to look once again upon the grace of your Son's death and resurrection, may you show us once again our need for him. Remind us once again that that we come holding nothing, that all we have is Christ. Help us. Help us look upon the beauties of his death and resurrection. And for now, put away our to-do list and simply admire it. It's in his name and for his sake we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.